For this episode of Metaphors Be With You, we'll be talking about issues of changing identity. Well, someone will. Hi, I'm Rob Hyatt of Chipperish Media, and this is a podcast about symbolism and allegory in Star Wars. The movies, the TV shows, the books, and everything else. Each episode will take a topic and apply it across whatever Star Wars media seems most appropriate. Some Star Wars characters have a little trouble figuring out who they are, where others derive power from their identities. We dive into this almost immediately in A New Hope, when we know nothing about the world yet and see 3PO come shuffling down a hall. For just a moment, you can see another silver-colored 3PO droid in the background, probably having its own set of wild adventures with a different heroic astromech droid. But this other droid isn't on camera for just a couple of seconds, and for a long time I wondered why Lucas, who was not working with an unlimited budget, felt strongly enough about this couple of seconds to spend the money to build another 3PO suit in a different color. The answer, I'm pretty sure, is to explain C-3PO to us. In this one moment, when we still know nothing about the Star Wars galaxy at large, seeing an identical droid in a different color tells us that C-3PO is a manufactured object, and there are enough of him out there that people can choose what color they like. He's emphatically not special, which fits nicely into the theme of following the ordinary peasants around that Lucas was planning to borrow from Akira Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress. Apparently, 20 years later, Lucas had changed his mind, because we find out in The Phantom Menace that 3PO was in fact hand-built by Space Jesus. And speaking of Anakin, let's talk about him and Darth Vader. Obi-Wan likes to talk about them as different people, but I think this is a failing on his part. In Return of the Jedi, when Ghost Ben describes Vader as having killed Anakin, saying that the good man he knew ceased to be, he was giving up on his friend. Now, his friend did murder him, but only after he left said friend, missing all his limbs to die of slow burning. They have a complicated relationship, is what I'm saying. But here's the thing. Vader has to be Anakin, or the redemption story is stupid and pointless. The central point of the first six Star Wars movies, as far as I'm concerned, is that there is no depth you can fall to where climbing out again is impossible. There's hope for everyone, but they may need the help of their community, even if it's a community of one other person, like Luke. If Vader is just the monster who killed Anakin, walking around and wearing his body like a Buffy the Vampire Slayer vampire, then it means that Anakin is just waiting in the wings for all these years, unblemished and boring, waiting for Luke to tag him in so he can kill the Emperor. I think Obi-Wan oversimplifies Vader to absolve himself of the guilt he still feels about his part in Anakin's transformation. If Anakin is dead, there's nothing Obi-Wan could have done to save him. But if Anakin is in there somewhere, he's failed his friend. So how does this transformation look from Anakin's perspective? Obviously he's been conflicted for a long time when we get to the big moment of truth in Revenge of the Sith, when he has to choose whether to side with Mace Windu or Sheev Palpatine. He's murdered a village full of sentient creatures, and he's got a marriage that he's keeping secret from the Jedi both of which are going to push him to think about them as an adversarial force a lot of the time. And the council's just told him that despite all his talent and ability, he's going to be sitting at the kids' table in council meetings. Furthermore, Palpatine has been nothing but kind and fatherly to him since he was a child, while Windu was held up at arm's length all that time. So when they're locked in mortal combat and he can help one or the other, but it doesn't seem like negotiation is an option anymore, he adopts the Jedi method of conflict resolution and lops an extremity off someone. With Windu suddenly unable to defend himself, Palpatine wastes no time killing him. So now you're Anakin, and things are moving really fast, and you've suddenly helped the Dark Lord of the Sith kill a leading member of the Jedi Council, and those guys never really appreciated you anyway, and Palpatine was always super cool, and he says he can help save your wife, and maybe this is the right way to go after all? This all makes sense to me, and I think it's reasonably well drawn. I do think we go from zero to child murder a little too fast, and maybe we shouldn't have spent a whole movie with Anakin as an innocent little boy, so we could slow this transformation down a bit. But what do I know? 
My point is, I think we can draw the line from Anakin Skywalker, Jedi Prodigy, to Darth Vader, Servant of the Dark Side, in a fairly understandable and sympathetic way, which for me further advances the idea that they really are a continuum of identity, not a binary switch. For a look at a different misunderstood Dark Lord type, let's talk about Kylo Ren, also known as Ben Solo. Ben has issues, and some of them come from his identity problems. Anytime a character changes their name, it probably means something. If they change it after suddenly murdering a bunch of people out of the blue, it probably means something pretty big. But before we look at the name Ben Solo chose for himself, let's talk about the name he was born with. Ben is presumably named for Ben Kenobi, but it's interesting to me that Ben wasn't Kenobi's real name. It was the name Obi-Wan chose for himself while keeping his surname in a really half-assed attempt to hide on Tatooine. So the name Ben already comes with identity baggage, and while it's the name Han and Luke knew him by, Leia never met him, and presumably only knew about him through the stories her father would have told of General Obi-Wan Kenobi. So we can reasonably assume that Luke and Han were the main reasons for Ben Solo's name, and let's be honest, it really sounds like more of a Luke thing than a Han thing. So maybe Han and Leia were, were humoring Uncle Luke, who after all probably wasn't going to have any kids of his own, especially after his father showed him the dangers of being a powerful Jedi with a spouse. So the final name, Ben Solo, is a combination of Luke's and Han's influence. Luke provided the given name, and Han provided the surname, despite the fact that Alderaan was matriarchal and the Organa name went back for generations while some imperial jerk had just handed Han his name at Space Ellis Island. Anyway, the new first name, Kylo, is also weirdly reminiscent of Skywalker and Solo combined. Ren is an ancient Egyptian word, and it refers to the part of one's soul contained in their name, also referred to as one's true name. So Ben Solo evolved past being a combination of Luke and Han to dub himself with his true name, combination of Luke and Han. This reads to me like an affirmation that Kylo hasn't really changed. He's still the same boy, terrified of his legacy, that everyone knew could be either a great hero or a monster, having decided that being a monster is probably simpler and easier. So then we come to Rey, whose identity issues are arguably even worse than Kylo's. When we meet Rey, she knows who she is. She's the scavenger whose family abandoned her, and are coming back. Except she knows in her heart that that last part isn't true because of the lingering shot we see of Rey watching an old woman cleaning her scavenged wares. We can practically see Rey wondering if she'll be this woman someday. Nevertheless, she clings to this identity for a good long while. After finding herself on the Millennium Falcon with Finn and BB-8, she wants to help the Resistance, except she needs to get back to Jakku. Sort of offered a job by Han Solo, she's very interested, except she needs to get back to Jakku. Offered a new destiny by Luke's old lightsaber, essentially speaking through Maz, Literally, her first words are, I have to get back to Jakku. Maz then makes the powerful case, which Rey appears to accept, that her family is never coming back to Jakku, and it's probably time to look forward instead of back, specifically dropping the hint that Luke might be her new family. But when Maz tells her to take the saber, Rey slips back into her scavenger persona, rather understandably, wants no part of this thing that just gave her this terrifying hallucination. So let's pause for a sec and acknowledge these three identities she's been offered. She can follow Leia's path in the Resistance, Han's path on the Falcon, or Luke's path toward the Jedi. Rey, the movie says, you can be any Star Wars hero you want. Just pick one. So the big climax of The Force Awakens is Rey pulling the lightsaber to her and essentially claiming the Jedi path. But when she finally comes face to face with Luke, she tries to give it away again. She's found a new identity, which is as a messenger for the Resistance, and her job is to deliver Luke's sword to him and try to get him to take it up again against the First Order. And so when Luke starts quizzing her about who she is, she tells him repeatedly, I'm from the Resistance, Leia sent me, and variations of the same. 
She has backed off completely from the baby step she took at the end of The Force Awakens and no longer has any identity. And so we have her cave scene. Obviously, this was a callback to Luke's cave scene in The Empire Strikes Back. And my read is that each cave shows the student their greatest weakness. Luke, in Empire, is impulsive, rash, and prone to big, dramatic, action-oriented solutions. Yoda tells him that he won't need his weapons, but he can't understand the idea of going into an unknown situation without being ready to fight something. So his cave shows him that by being so eager to fight, he will turn into what he fears, Darth Vader. So Rey enters her cave in the middle of this identity crisis, and she sees herself reflected countless times, a vast legion of rays. The cave seems to say, you contain multitudes, you could be anything you want. So she moves through all these avatars, all these possible identities, and she arrives at the mirror and says, show me my parents. And I just imagine the cave throwing up its hands in exasperation before showing her herself. The cave is basically calling her on her bullshit and telling her that she has to figure out who she is for herself, which is the journey she starts in the second half of the movie, and I assume will complete in the final third of this trilogy. I'm going to finish up here by segueing into the story that made me want to do an episode about identity. Obviously, making your army entirely out of clones of one man is going to result in some identity issues, and the Clone Wars cartoon dealt with some of these kinds of issues several times. I was always fascinated that the clones on the show and in Revenge of the Sith all had fun little nicknames, and Cody will always stand out to me as the name you would least suspect of double-crossing you. We also saw a number of troopers who decorated their helmets in some way, beyond the markings that were presumably supposed to distinguish units from one another. Jango Fett mostly seemed to operate alone, so it's not at all surprising that his hundreds of thousands of progeny would be looking for a little individuality from each other. But my favorite moment of identity metaphor in Star Wars was in an episode of Rebels called The Last Battle. Captain Rex, the clone veteran who has joined the Young Rebellion, he didn't participate in Order 66 because he had a note, as explained in the Clone Wars cartoon, is visiting a planet still held by battle droids and having a bit of what seems very much like PTSD, though the show never calls it that. Over the course of the episode, Rex is having trouble keeping his focus as they fight the droids, but there comes a moment when he's fighting a destroyer droid, and his shots are just bouncing off the thing's shields. In sheer desperation, he takes off his clone trooper helmet and throws it at the droid. The helmet hits the droid in just the right spot to take down its shield, and he's able to defeat it, by literally throwing the symbol of his identity as a clone trooper away. That's the moment when the Clone Wars finally end for Rex, and we hear no more about his PTSD. Obviously, this isn't realistic to actual PTSD experiences, but it's symbolically beautiful, and we do have to make some allowances for the fact that this is a 22-minute episode of television. So that's all I'm going to talk about today, because this is already one of the longest episodes I've recorded, but my notes actually have a number of other identity things to go into, like disguises, starfighters' identity, and the massive can of worms that is Darth Revan. So this may be a topic I revisit in the future. In the meantime, if you want to discuss anything I've said here, talk to me on Twitter at rhyrit, or come to the Chippers forums if you'd like to have a conversation outside of 280 character limits. If you'd like to support my work and the other great podcasts here at Chipperish, head to our Patreon page and chip in a dollar a month or whatever you can afford, and join the conversation on Chipperish's own Discord room. You can also support any podcast you love by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and metaphors be with you.